morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time today, thank you for being here. Um, I'd love to meet you, so please uh, come by the Welcome Center after the worship service, say a quick hi, and I'd love to give you a small gift for visiting today. <clears throat> well, today we're going to start a new sermon series um, on the book of Acts, and it's going to be called Being the Church. Being the church. It's not just the title of the sermon series, but it's also going to be the theme for this new ministry year, uh, which starts off next Sunday, uh, which is our fall kickoff Sunday. You see, as we begin to regather as a church and as we begin to enter into a post-pandemic world with new normals, the elders of our church believe that this is an opportune time for us as a church to reset and to refocus as a church family. The pandemic was and is, and in many ways still is, a big challenge for all of us. But it is also an opportunity. You see, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to, to slow down and to reflect upon our lives and to reassess and to reprioritize the things that truly matter, the things that are truly important to us. Likewise, I think this pandemic gives us an opportunity to reflect upon our life together as a church family and for us to reassess and to reprioritize those things that truly matter, those things that are really important to us as a church. So for this upcoming year, we're going to reflect on what it means to be the church. You know, we don't want to just go back to business as usual because uh, restrictions are lifting uh, without thoughtful reflection. Life is too short. Life is too important for us to live without thoughtful reflection. Therefore, this year and for the years to come, we want to be a thoughtful, intentional, and a kingdom-minded church. So the main goal of this sermon series is to see what the book of Acts has to say about what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ so that we might be a church that is patterned after and maybe even begins to resemble more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church that we find in the book of Acts. Uh, today's sermon will serve as an introduction not, to, uh, just, uh, not only to the book of Acts, but also to the entire sermon series, which will go uh, to the end of June next year. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 3. Luke, the author of Luke's gospel, is also the author of this book. In fact, these two books are meant to be read together. Bible commentators refer to Luke's two-volume work as Luke Acts. So it's very fitting for us uh, that this year we'll be studying the book of Acts since we studied Luke's gospel last year. So people of God, would you please pay attention carefully because this is the reading of God's word. <clears throat> In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
Here's the sermon outline for today. First, we're going to consider the purpose of the book of Acts. Second, we will consider the interpretive principle that will help us to rightly interpret and apply the book of Acts to the life of our church. And then third and lastly, I want to share a vision of the kind of church that we might become by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us as we seek to follow the pattern of the early church that we find in the book of Acts. So let's begin with the purpose. So what is the purpose of the book of Acts? Well, Luke tells us in verse 1, doesn't he? He tells us that in his first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, uh, his purpose was to deal with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And that means that the purpose of a second book, which is the book of Acts, is to deal with what Jesus continued to do and teach. Now, it's a common misunderstanding among Christians to think that Luke's gospel was mainly about what Jesus did and taught, while the book of Acts is mainly about what the apostles taught and did. But verse 1 tells us that's not true. Both Luke's gospel and his book of Acts are about what Jesus did and said. John Stott, the English uh, Bible scholar and commentator, said this, Jesus' ministry on earth, exercised personally and publicly, was followed by his ministry from heaven, exercised through his Holy Spirit by his apostles. Moreover, the watershed between the two was the ascension. Not only did it conclude Luke's first book and introduce the second, but listen very carefully, it's so important, but it, ter- but it terminated Jesus' earthly ministry and inaugurated his heavenly ministry. In other words, both Luke and Acts are about the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke was about Jesus' ministry on earth, which he conducted personally. But the book of Acts is also about Jesus' ministry. But this time, from heaven, his ministry from heaven, which he conducted through his Holy Spirit, by his apostles. So a better title for this book might be something like this. The continuing words and deeds of the ascended Lord Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. But that's a clumsy and long title, so we'll stick with the book of Acts. But the point being, the book of Acts is still about Jesus and what Jesus did and said. Now, this also means that the primary purpose of the book of Acts is not to tell us about what the church is supposed to be and do. Now, don't get me wrong. The book of Acts will tell us plenty about what the church is, right? What our mission is, what our message is, and what our manner of life is to be. But the primary purpose of the book of Acts is not to tell us about the church. You see, every book in the Bible is a Christ-centered book including the book of Acts. So the primary purpose of the book of Acts, like every other book in the Bible, is to reveal, glorify, and exalt Christ. The book of Acts is just as much a Jesus-centered book as the Gospel of Luke is. It's not as if Jesus was the star of the Gospel of Luke, but then the apostles are the stars of the book of Acts. No, even in the book of Acts, it is the risen, living, and ascended Lord Jesus who speaks and acts through his apostles. When the apostles teach and heal and do whatever they do in the name of Jesus, it is Jesus doing those things through his apostles. So all that to say, our first and primary response to the book of Acts ought to be, like every other book, 
faith in Christ and worship of Christ. As we behold what the risen and ascended Lord Jesus taught and did through his apostles, we ought to respond by trusting Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and loving Jesus. The book of Acts is not a manual on how to run a church. It is a selective history of all the things that Jesus did and said and taught so that we might behold him, so that we might trust him, worship him, and follow him. So Christ Central, as we study the book of Acts this year, let's learn what it means to be the church. But more importantly, let's trust and worship and follow the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ because he is the head of the church. He's the foundation of the church, and he is the one who is building the church and building our church today. Amen? It's all about Christ, even the book of Acts. So the purpose of the book of Acts is to tell us what the risen and ascended Jesus continued to do and to teach through his apostles. Next, let's consider the interpretive principle that will help us to rightly interpret and apply the book of Acts to the life of our church. You know, as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to find the apostles and the church doing, saying, and experiencing a lot of things. A whole lot of things. And we're going to have to ask ourselves this very important question. Of all the things that the apostles and the church did and said and experienced, what's descriptive and what's prescriptive? Now, you might be wondering, what's the difference, Pastor Rowan, between descriptive and prescriptive? Well, let me explain this to you because this is critical. When I say descriptive, what I mean is uh, that it simply describes what happened at that time, and it is not meant to be normative for the whole church in all the ages in order for us to follow or to reproduce. And when I say prescriptive, what I mean is it not only describes what happened at that time, but it is also meant to be normative for the whole church in all the ages so that churches even today should be imitating them and reproducing them. As we study the life and the ministry of the apostles and of the church, we have to discern what is normative and what is not. In other words, we have to be able to discern between what is descriptive and prescriptive. And there are two dangers that we have to avoid. And I deliberately chose the word danger instead of error. Because these errors can be dangerous uh, to the sanity and the vitality of the church. So here's the first danger. It is to believe that everything in the book of Acts is prescriptive. This approach says everything that we see happening in the book of Acts needs to be reproduced today in the life of the church today. Everything they said and did and experienced in the book of Acts is to be normative for all churches, including today. This is the, the train of thought that some people say something like this. If we are truly filled with the Holy Spirit, like the book, like, like the church was in the book of Acts, as we see them performing signs and wonders, as we see them speaking in tongues, as we see them healing and doing all sorts of miraculous things, those are the things that we should be seeing and doing ourselves if we are truly filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we're not seeing those things, then that must mean that we are not filled with the Holy Spirit like the early church, early church was. So that's the first danger, to believe that everything in Acts is prescriptive. And let me tell you why this is dangerous. 
If we believe that everything in Acts is prescriptive, then we're going to lose our sanity as a church, trying to do and say and experience everything that's experienced and done in the book of Acts. And we're going to lose our minds trying to do that because there are some things in the book of Acts that we are not supposed to reproduce or to imitate. Here's the second danger. To believe that everything is descriptive. This approach says nothing that we see happening in the books of Acts in, in the book, the book of Acts is normative for today. Everything that the church did in Acts, uh, whatever they did and said and, and experienced, was unique to the apostolic age, and it is merely descriptive. It is merely telling us what happened, and it is not meant to be normative for the whole church in all the ages. So this is the second danger, to believe that nothing in Acts should be reproduced or done by the church today. And that's dangerous because when you believe that nothing is applicable, then that threatens the vitality of the church. So how do we avoid both of these dangers? First, we begin by acknowledging that there is both descriptive and prescriptive material in the book of Acts. Some things are descriptive. And some things are prescriptive. But how do we discern the difference between the two? What interpretive principle will help us discern what is descriptive and what is prescriptive? Listen very carefully. Because here is the interpretive principle that will help us. You've heard the word before, and it's called context. Context is king. Context helps us to discern what is descriptive and what's prescriptive. And specifically, we need to keep two contexts in mind, okay? As we read and study the book of Acts, here's the first context. We must read Acts in the light of Luke's first volume, his gospel. As we go through the book of Acts, you're going to realize that there are a lot of parallels between his gospel and the book of Acts. For example, in the gospel, Jesus received the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, which empowered him to fulfill his mission. What are we going to find in Acts? The apostles receiving the Holy Spirit at the beginning of their ministry, so they're empowered to fulfill their mission. In the gospel, we find Jesus miraculously healing and restoring broken bodies and spirits. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see the apostles miraculously healing broken bodies and broken spirits. And the gospel, Jesus preached the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And in the book of Acts, we're going to find the apostles preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And in the gospel, Jesus was opposed and persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders. And what are you going to find in the book of Acts? The apostles being opposed and persecuted by Jewish religious leaders. There are so many parallels between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And you have to ask, what is Luke doing when he's doing that? It almost seems like the apostles are repeating the ministry of Jesus. Luke's point is, these apostles are not just imitators of Jesus' ministry. They're actually conduits through which Jesus is continuing to do his ministry. It really is, and it really was, the risen and the ascended Lord Jesus continuing his ministry through his apostles. So, as we watch the acts of the apostles, and as we listen to the teachings of the apostles, we must realize first and foremost that it was the risen and ascended Lord Jesus who was speaking and acting 
through his apostles. And why do I share that? Here's the point. The common sense that we brought to understanding the gospel of Luke is the same common sense that we have to bring to understanding the book of Acts. When you read the the, the gospel of Luke and you saw Jesus do amazing things, your first instinct is not to say, hey, I should do those things too. You observe them, you praise God for them, and you worship God for them. You didn't try to imitate them. Because there are things in the gospel, in the gospel of Luke that we as followers of Jesus are not meant to reproduce or to imitate. And at the same time, there are things in the, book of, uh, in the gospel of Luke that we are meant to imitate and to, redu- and to reproduce as Christ followers, right? In the same way, there's material in the book of Acts that we're meant to reproduce and things that we're not meant to reproduce. And we need to bring the same contextual common sense to the book of Acts that we did bring to the gospel of Luke. Here's a second context. We must read Acts in the light of the New Testament epistles. This is huge. Luke was both a historian and a theologian, and Acts is both history and theology. Uh, You might call it theological history. So you see, Luke doesn't just record historical events that actually happened, but he also explains the theological significance of some of those historical events. But the book of Acts is mainly historical narrative, not theological instruction. It's in the New Testament epistles where we get the fullest, the most robust, and the most comprehensive teaching about what the church is to believe and to do. Therefore, We need the New Testament epistles to explain more fully the theological and the ethical implications of the things that we find in the book of Acts. That means, friends, practically, that we will be cautious as accepting as prescriptive and normative any element in in the book of Acts that are not confirmed in the teachings of New Testament epistles. In other words, if there is a practice that's recorded in the book of Acts, but if it is not reiterated and confirmed in the New Testament epistles, then we need to be very careful to insist that that practice is normative and prescriptive for us today. Let me just give you one example of what I mean. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to find Matthias uh, being chosen to replace Judas Iscariot, and he will be the last uh, apostle. And he was chosen by the casting of lots. Now we have to ask this question. Is choosing church leaders to be done by casting lots, is that normative for us today? Or could it be that was a unique way that the last apostle was chosen directly by Jesus? So the question is, casting lots, is that descriptive or prescriptive? As we study the New Testament epistles, we find nowhere else in in, in any part of the New Testament epistles that church leaders were ever chosen by casting of lots. Instead, we seem to find another way. It was through prayerful discernment uh, based on people's gifting and character, right? And so this is what I'm talking about. We have to find evidence that something is repeated and confirmed in the New Testament epistles before we claim that this practice must be normative and prescriptive for the whole church at all times because it's the New Testament, friends, where we get the fullest treatment about Christian life and doctrine. So as we seek to interpret and apply the book of Acts to our life together as a church, we must do so with 
the context of both the Gospel of Luke and the New Testament epistles. This is the only way that we can wisely discern what is descriptive and what is prescriptive so that we can maintain both our sanity and our vitality as a church. Okay, so let me get to now my third and last point. It's going to be kind of a long point, so I'm going to uh, warn you. But here's the so what. And this so what is not actually for this sermon. It's the so what for this entire sermon series. During our elders' team-building retreat, which happened uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a few of the elders asked me, Pastor Owen, what difference do you hope that our study of the book of Acts will make in the life of our church? They're basically asking, how do you want our church to grow and change and mature? What kind of church do you envision our church becoming by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because we're going to spend an entire year studying the book of Acts. Now, that was a great question. And to be honest, until then, I hadn't really thought about that question. And so after the retreat, I spent about two days thinking and praying about that very question. And what I want to do is share with you some of the fruit of my thought and reflection to that very important question. So the question is, what kind of church do we want to become because we studied the book of Acts? I envision our church becoming and doing seven things. And these seven things are all drawn from the book of Acts. And when we get to them in their proper place in the book of Acts, I'll point them out to you. But these seven things, as kind of a preview of things to expect, uh, these are the seven things that I hope that our church will do and become because we studied the book of Acts this year. And here's the first. Make Christ central by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be a church that understands, believes, and proclaims the gospel. I want us to be a church that lives out our core values of being a Christ-centered and commissioned church. The mission that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his disciples and to his church was that they might be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Their mission is normative for the whole church in all ages, and that means that is still our mission today. You see, everywhere the apostles went, And everywhere the church was scattered, especially through persecution, what did they do? They went about proclaiming the word of God. They went about preaching the gospel. And in fact, um, did you know that about 30% of the book of Acts is actually texts that describe the sermons that the apostles preached? One long one by Peter and mostly by the apostle Paul. And when we get to those sections, we're going to study the the sermons preached by the apostles because they're preaching the gospel. And as we study the sermons that were preached, my hope is that we as a church would understand the gospel more rightly, that we would believe it more deeply, but we can't stop there. It is not enough for us to understand and believe the gospel for ourselves. We must then move on to the next part, which is most important, which is then proclaim the gospel passionately, freely, courageously, and lovingly with the people uh, in, in the places where we live, work, and play. You see, friends, we as a church, we are called to be witnesses for Christ to the ends of the world. And I don't know if you know this, but we live in the ends of the world from a Jewish perspective. Washington, D.C. is the end of the world. And God has called us as a church to be witnesses right here and to share the gospel. Let me ask you, 
When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? I'm hoping and praying that this year, that this might be the area where we see the most growth as a church, where we courageously, lovingly, freely, joyfully share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people in our lives. So that's the first. Second, make Christ central by the power of the Holy Spirit be a church that gathers together in both large and small groups for worship, for the study of God's word, and for fellowship. I want us to live out our core values of being a Christ-centered and a connected church. See, the church in Acts didn't just believe in Christ, but they also lived in vibrant community with others who believed in Christ. According to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're going to get to this text in about three weeks. We're going to find the church devoting them, themselves to these things, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, because of the social isolation that we've all had to endure because of the pandemic, I feel like that we've forgotten what it's like to live together in community. And, and I feel like we need to relearn what it means to live in community. Now, by the way, living in community means more than just hanging out with a few close friends, as important as that is. But we need to learn how to do life together as an entire church family. And I pray that this is going to be another way that we can grow as a church, that we will regularly and consistently gather together for the purpose of worshiping God together, for the purpose of studying the apostles' teaching together, for the purpose of fellowship, for the purpose of breaking bread together and and, and to praying together. So may Christ Central be a church that follows the normative practices that we see the early church doing, especially in Acts chapter 2. Third, Made Christ central by the power of the Holy Spirit, be a church that adorns the gospel that we proclaim with our good deeds, with deeds of mercy and deeds of justice. I want us to be a church that lives out our core value of being a city-positive church. Over and over again, we will see the church in the book of Acts sharing their resources, even selling personal property to take care of one another, so that there was not a needy one among them as he cared for the poor and the powerless. We're going to see the, uh, ch- the church in the, in the book of Acts not just declaring the love of Christ, but also demonstrating the love of Christ through their acts of kindness, compassion, justice, and mercy. You see, the world at that time in the book of Acts wasn't just convicted by the church's message, but they were also compelled by the church's love, that love that was tangibly and and practically expressed as they cared for one another, as they cared for the poor and the needy. Fourth, may Christ central by the power of the Holy Spirit be a church that prays and fasts for the advance of the gospel. In Acts, we're going to see the church praying and fasting for the advance of the gospel. I'll be very honest with you. This is not in my script. I'm going to go off script a little bit. It's kind of dangerous, but listen very carefully. To be honest, growing up, I always thought fasting was more descriptive and not prescriptive. It's just something that the early church did. It's only what Jesus' disciples did, and only kind of the super spiritual people nowadays fast. I don't know if that's, maybe I'm just talking about me, because I hardly ever fast. I pray for the advance of the gospel. I cannot honestly remember the last time I fasted that the gospel might go forward. 
I can't remember the last time I abstained from food and drink for a time so that I could fully devote myself to pleading with God that the gospel might go forward. If that's true of me, it's probably true of you. And I'm hoping that this might be another area in our church's life together that we can grow in, that we might be a church that doesn't just earnestly pray, but we even fast because we hunger for the kingdom of God to go forward more than we hunger for food and drink. I want it to matter that much to us. And, and let me also say this before we start. You know, and when we as individuals and, and as a church begin to fast for the advance of the gospel, it is, we don't fast so that we can appear you know, pious or religious. We fast because we're telling God we hunger and thirst more for your righteousness, more, uh, your, more for your kingdom than we do for food and drink. That's how much it means to us. And I want to ask you, Christ Central, can we pray that, that the advance of the gospel would mean so important to us that we'd be willing to pray and to fast for it? And may we see growth and transformation in our lives individually and in the life of our church collectively in this area. Fifth, um, may Christ Central, by the power of the Spirit, be a church that lives in a manner that reflects that our ultimate citizenship and hope are in heaven in the way that we live and suffer. I want us to live out our core values of being a Christ-centered and a countercultural church. You know, as members of the church, we understand that we are ultimately citizens of heaven. And that means, listen, if we're citizens of heaven, that means we hold our earthly citizenship loosely while we hold on to our heavenly citizenship tightly. And we're going to see this in the book of Acts, but sometimes to be a good Christian meant that you had to be a bad Roman. The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, but there were times when he was a bad Roman citizen because he disobeyed Roman laws in order to obey Christ. Though Paul was a Roman citizen, his ultimate allegiance was not to Caesar. It was to Christ. And in the same way, our ultimate citizenship is not in America. And our ultimate allegiance is not to a political party. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, and our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, not to the Democratic Party, not to the Republican Party, not to the president, or any other political leader that you think will save America or the world. Our allegiance is not to Caesar, but to Christ. Also, as we experience trials and suffering and hardship and frustrations, and we're all going to experience that, but we will not become angry or discouraged that life is not going the way we want it to be. Because we understand that we are pilgrims and strangers here and that this world is not our true home. We know that whatever difficulty that we're called to endure is but for a short time. Because one day we will be at home with the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more suffering or trials or hardships anymore. And, and when we understand that our hope is in heaven, it gives us a heavenly and an eternal perspective that allows us to deal wisely and faith, faithfully with the hardships that we're called to endure in this life. Six, may Christ central by the power of the Holy Spirit be a church that is willing to suffer loss for the sake of Christ and the gospel should we be called to do so. 
we will see the apostles and the church in Acts prioritizing the gospel and obedience to Christ above personal safety. We will see them being willing to be imprisoned and even physically beaten for the sake of their faith in Christ and their commitment to advancing the gospel. And they even rejoiced when they were persecuted or beaten that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Like many of you these days, I cannot help but think a lot about our Afghan brothers and sisters in Christ. This past Wednesday, we had a church prayer meeting devoted to praying for them. I also listened to several interviews uh, with an Afghan pastor, and he was telling stories about what his brothers and sisters are going through in Afghanistan. And I can't tell you how moved and how inspired I was by the heroic and courageous faith of our Afghan brothers and sisters who, will, who remain committed to Christ in a place where they know that their lives are in danger if they continue to do so. They, they might even be killed if they uh, continue to do so as they confess. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you hear those words from the lips of our brothers and sisters who are actually being persecuted for their faith, there is a weight and a power to those words that just uh, put uh, uh, chills down my spine. And I found myself wanting, I want a faith like that. I want to follow Christ like that. Friends, um, don't we dare ever think that Christians in America are more mature or somehow more whatever than the global Christians because somehow they're less educated or whatever it is. I can tell you right now, they are spiritual giants and we're the babies. We're the babies. We have so much to learn from Christians around the world who are willing to suffer for their faith. We may know more theology, but they know more Jesus. Just put it that way. And I think this is a big challenge for us as American Christians because as I know myself and as I know you, we functionally believe that if we're faithful to Christ and one of the blessings that Christ is going to give to us is is safety and success, if if we're faithful to Christ, then then Jesus is going to give us successful kids, successful careers, and somehow make life uh, less, uh, less filled with suffering because we naively expect or believe that the gospel should save us from suffering. But that is just not true. The gospel never promises to save us from suffering, ever. In fact, what it does promise is this, that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise that we find in Scripture. And so, um, now, as Christians in America, we may or may not be persecuted. I don't know. And what I'm telling you today is I'm not saying that we should go out looking for suffering because of our faith in Christ. But what I'm saying is if suffering comes our way because we're faithful to Christ, then so be it. Then so be it. And then we're going to pray that God gives us the grace to endure those sufferings in a manner that honors Christ and in a way that shows the world that our faith is so precious that it's worth suffering for. Friends, um, And also, let me say this. Just because we don't suffer here in America, it does not mean that the church of Christ is not suffering. We belong to the global church. 
our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, our brothers and sisters in North Korea, our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are suffering, that means that the body of Christ is suffering. That means we're suffering. We don't just belong to the American church. We belong to the international church. And so when brothers and sisters that we don't know by name yet are suffering in Afghanistan, we're called to stand in solidarity with them, to pray for them, and to do what we can to support them. We cannot say it's their problem. It's our problem because we belong to the global body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Lastly, make Christ central by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be a church that plants churches for the sake of advancing the gospel and the kingdom of God in greater Metro D.C. I want us to live out our core values of being a commissioned and a collaborative church. In the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul going from city to city, preaching the gospel, and then gathering new believers into churches. He's forming churches. Paul was a prolific church planter. Planting churches is the most kingdom-advancing gospel-proclaiming, and neighbor-loving thing we could ever do. For several years now, the elders of our church have been prayerfully wrestling with God, seeking the Lord's will about planting a daughter church. And at this time, we sense that the Lord is leading us to do so. In fact, at our session retreat this past year, the session, by the way, unanimously, we hardly ever have unanimous votes, but every single elder to the man believed and sensed that God is calling our church to plant a church. Therefore, going forward, we will be committed to being a church that plants churches. And that commitment is going to show up in our budget. And that commitment will also show up in how I understand my role as a senior pastor of this church. You see, I'm going to enter into my 50s officially next month. I turn 50 in October. And, and I sense a burden as I enter into my 50s. Uh, for, for the past 10 years, my primary work and concern has been to lead and to pastor this church as the senior pastor of this church. And, and I think God has honored that, and I love doing that. But as I enter into my 50s, I sense uh, God putting a burden on my heart to not just care about our church, but to care about the next generation of Asian American pastors and church planters. And so I will be giving myself to the work of mentoring, resourcing, empowering, and raising up the next generation of pastors and church planters. That's going to be a part of my job description going on into the next 10 or 15 years. And I can't wait to share more with you at Vision Ed, but by the way, that's the big news that I was going to share with you. Um, that I told you about at the town hall meeting. Some of you thought, oh, what's Pastor Owen going to talk about? Is he going to resign? No, no. I'm sorry if you're disappointed. I'm still going to be here. But the big news is that we sense that God is calling us to give birth to a daughter church that's going to proclaim the gospel and love their neighbors. Um, I can't wait to give you more details about that at our vision night. So please join us on September 18th at 7.30 p.m. right here, or you can join us online. But we're going to give you more details about what we believe God is calling us to do as a church. So i got to wrap this up. I'm already four minutes over, and someone's going to get mad at me. So let me end right now. So Christ Central family, this is the vision for our church. Because of our study of the book of Acts, May the Holy Spirit who indwells us so work in us 
that we as a church might begin to resemble more and more the church that we find in the book of Acts. And that may mean that you and I have some repenting to do. That may mean that you and I have to make some recommitments to things that we were committed to, but maybe we kind of grew lax in. And so I pray that this new year would be a year of repentance, a year of rejoicing, and a year of seeing what God might do in us and through us for his glory, for the good of greater Metro DC, and for our joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. And we pray even now, would you use the book of Acts and the power of your Holy Spirit to renew, refine, and transform us as a church that we might reflect and even resemble more and more the church that we see and read about in the book of Acts. It's in Jesus' name we pray.